Five verses that raise many questions, I think. And the biggest question of all, do we have eyes that see and that recognise Jesus, the Son of God? So let me pray before I start off. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we look into it now, help us to be open to your leading. Open up what your word teaches us and how we can apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in Mark's Gospel, we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus' ministry. That's the series we're doing at the moment, four weeks looking at some eyewitness accounts. Uh, And we have a reliable history from reliable witnesses of where Jesus went, what he did and what he said, as we do in Matthew, Luke and John as well. The way that Mark writes, though, I think is is pretty significant. Um, In youth ministry, I've lost track of the times that I've heard people and myself recommend that new Christians or people exploring the faith um, start by reading Mark. Now, mostly, I think, because it's short, so it matches teenagers' attention spans, Uh, but also it's fast-paced, it's active, it dives straight into the story. If you were looking for the Gospel of Mark in a video store, if you remember those, uh, you wouldn't go looking in the drama or the biography section, you'd probably go to the action section. It's the style of writing that Mark uses. We don't get greetings or introductions or a CV of his qualifications for writing this gospel, he just dives straight in. So if you've got your Bibles, um, we're going to be looking at chapter 8, but I'm just going to start off in chapter 1 of Mark, just looking at the first little section there. So in Mark chapter 1, in verse 1, we're told that this is a gospel. Now we know that that word means the good news, which it is, but in those days when Mark was writing, it was also used to announce significant events. So an example is is when the proclamation was put out about the birth of the Emperor Augustus, which people thought would bring on a big age of peace. The the word gospel was used for that announcement. So this book Mark is telling us is announcing Jesus, the Son of God, and something significant is about to happen. He's trying to get across to us that this is a book of world-changing proportions. Now in in verse 2, Mark evokes the whole Old Testament, and the history of Israel, and the, the speed of his, his chapter 1 here starts to pick up. So we go from the whole of the Old Testament uh, evoked, in verse 4 we meet John the Baptist, in verse 9 we meet Jesus, five verses later he's gathering disciples, seven verses later in verse 21 he's in the temple and he's being confronted by evil spirits. This is only verse 21 of chapter 1. Eight more verses and he's healing, not someone but many people. It's no wonder that by verse 35 of chapter 1, Jesus needs to go off by himself for a little while and spend some time praying. It's pretty full on. Now, some would accuse Mark of being hyperactive, having ADHD. He certainly wants to take his readers on the journey that the disciples went on. He wants us to fully experience the emotion, the experience of being on that journey with him. While Luke sat down and painstakingly set out to create an orderly account for Theophilus, he tells us, my feeling is that how we read Mark is much closer to how the disciples would have actually felt going on this journey with Jesus. We know, don't we, that when major events happen around us, time seems to be operating differently, whether it be a traumatic event or the happiest day of our life. The thing, there are things that we miss completely, I think there's a photo, I was trying to find a photo of our wedding, because I know there was a bunch of people who at the time, I didn't even know who they were, and I look at photos and go, I didn't even know they were there. This lady off to the side there, I don't know if you see, it looks like it's just been bitten by a wasp or something, (laughs) a 
heads expanding. So there's things that we miss completely in those sort of moments. There's other smaller details that we might not normally notice at all that seem to consume our attention. Our experience of those events is not like an impartial bystander or like the Hansard sitting in Parliament with a typewriter just coolly recording all the events that happen around them or the circus in terms of Parliament that happens around them. No, we live those moments, those significant moments. Mark's writing gives us a taste of what it must have been like to go from day in, day out, fishing the same stretch of water on the, of the Sea of Galilee, or day in, day out, collecting the taxes and just filling out the ledger, to suddenly being uprooted and fo- starting to follow Jesus with no warning, travelling from one miracle to another, witnessing amazing sights and amazing teaching, and sitting across the table and sharing food with could it actually be the Messiah? They might be walking along a road trying to work out the parable that Jesus just told them over breakfast and the next thing, he's cursing a fig tree or there's a pack of pigs running past to their destruction. If you feel tired reading Mark, imagine being one of those disciples. Now, even understanding that, I still get to today's passage in Mark 8, 22 to 26 and I kind of feel like shouting, just stop, just slow down for a second That was five verses, but I think it raises more questions than it does answers. So here we go, with four questions and an elephant. The biggest question of all to me, the elephant in the room, if you like, is why did Jesus fail? Did you catch it? He messed up. It didn't work the first time round. Or at least that's what seems to have happened. I'm going to leave that one to last, just to make sure you stay awake. So four other quicker questions first. Um, that when I started looking at this passage, kind of jumped straight out at me and they may have jumped out to you as well. So where is he at and what's he doing? Why do they leave the village in verse 23? Why shouldn't the man go back into the village in verse 26? And why did Jesus use spit in verse 23? So what point is Jesus at in his ministry? We know from the passage that he's travelling with his disciples... Um, and he's in, or at least in the little satellite villages around Bethsaida. For around two years, he's been teaching, he's been healing, word spread of his miraculous deeds. It's no wonder that some in the village think that maybe he can do something about this blind man. Now, we're not actually told in that passage whether these are his friend, the blind man's friends and family. Um, it may have been, or it may have just been that people from the village grabbed up the nearest blind man they could find to try and see Jesus in action when they heard that he was passing. Jesus isn't just wandering the towns randomly or aimlessly though. His life is already in danger at this point. About a year earlier, you can read in Mark 3.6, the Pharisees and the Herodians had formed an unlikely alliance seeking Jesus' death. Shortly before arriving in Bethsaida, Jesus fed the 5,000. That's an eyewitness account that Rod's going to help us with next week. Uh, But as a result of that, the Galileans think that they should forcefully make Jesus their king something that Herod and his followers would not have been too happy about. And Herod had just killed off John the Baptist, so he had some form. Jesus had also just had a dispute with the Pharisees about uncleanness at the start of chapter 7. So by the end of chapter 7, not long before this passage we're looking at, uh, Jesus doesn't appear in public in the region of Galilee again. Instead, he travels to the west, to the north and to the east of Galilee uh, in the Gentile lands because In Galilee, his life is in danger. He wants to stay out of the reach of Herod. 
Now, keep that in the back of your minds because it'll be important a little bit later on. He is traveling now through Gentile or non-Jewish lands. So that's where he's at and what he's doing. Why did Jesus lead, him, lead the blind man out of the village in verse 23? That's something we see Jesus do a couple of times when he's about to heal. He moves away from the crowds or out of the town. He doesn't go out seeking people to heal normally. Normally people are being brought to him, but we almost always see that his compassion causes him to act. And so I think it's a perfectly natural thing that having compassion on this blind man, he wants to speak with him. We saw last week that Jesus' power, first and foremost, is in his words, or more accurately, the word of God. And so I think he would be getting to know this blind man a little, relating to him, telling him of why he's come, maybe questioning, finding out about this man's faith. We should recognise the significance of Jesus being so personal, so keen on and valuing of the relationships that he had with people. It's not the image of a king or God as the people were expecting, or maybe even as we expect him now. So he's personal, he's relational, and he often needs to get away from the mob or the village. To jump slightly ahead into the passage, the related question in verse 26 is why shouldn't the healed man then go back into the village? Jesus tells him not to go back, not to go on a shout from the rooftops as you'd kind of expect that he'd been healed. Uh, and, and we see that in other healings that Jesus does as well. He tells them not to go back into the village. Why? Well, when we see this type of request from Jesus, uh, it's in part because he doesn't want to be known specifically as a healer. This is a time of pretty primitive health care. There's no federally funded hospitals or Medicare. And so the chance of Jesus and his disciples being completely overwhelmed by the sick, the possessed and the hurting is a real possibility. When confronted by these people in these situations, he's often overcome by compassion and he gladly heals people. But it's not why he has come. He's come to preach, he tells us in Mark 1.38. Preach what, we should ask? Well, in Mark 1.15, that the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So he tries to keep word of his miraculous healing partly under wraps as he's staying focused on his primary mission to preach the, to preach the good news. There is at least one other reason he suggests the man doesn't go into Bethsaida though. Uh, in Matthew 11:21 and Luke 10:12 to 13, we read of a curse or a woe that Jesus proclaims against towns where the good news of the kingdom of God was preached, where miracles were performed, but where it wasn't accepted or welcomed. And Bethsaida is actually one of those that he names. He cries out that these towns did not accept the word of God, that if the same things had been done in the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon, that they would have repented. And just to make it crystal clear what he thinks of these towns that rejected his message, Matthew eleven twenty four, I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow, there's a rebuke. And so it's possible, having spoken to this blind man of who he was and why he'd come, having shown him compassion and healed him, that Jesus doesn't want the man to go back into this cursed and spiritually desolate town. Maybe he also doesn't want this man who now has the good news of Jesus to enter it and have the good news maligned even further. 
they've wiped the dust of that town from their sandals, having not been welcomed. Now, the fourth question, why spit? The grossest part of the reading today. Simple answer is we don't really know why. It's not 100% clear. The man doesn't seem to have been blind from birth. He knows what some things look like. So it seems more likely that he's suffered some form of disease or injury and that he might have even had pain and open wounds on his eyes. So some think that the warmth of the spit would help ease the pain on his eyes. Apparently it was quite a common thing to do back then. There is also an obscure reference in Jewish tradition to the spit of the firstborn son easing pain. I think that's a bit too obscure. Uh, it may simply be that often with healing we see Jesus physically identifying with people and their problems before healing them. So we see with Jesus in Mark 7, 31 to 37, that he puts his fingers in the ears of the deaf mute man. We see him again in that one with spit, but this time on the tongue. Even worse, isn't it? But he's relating to these people. He's leading them by the hand. He's, he's eating with them, even in some cases where people were diseased, he's touching them. Physical contact, which would have just been shocking at the time. He identifies with them, he knows them, he has compassion on them. So they were the four questions that jumped straight out at me when I first read this passage. Um, you may have had more, and I'd love to talk to you afterwards about what you think about those questions. But the elephant in the room, as I think this really is the crux of this passage, the strange account of Jesus almost healing. It's the only time we see a two-part miracle like this. Now, I don't know if you remember, definitely more mature people in the room uh, will remember Fred Hollows. Um, there's still an ad flying around on, on TV, which I'll show you in a second, but Fred uh, is often described as a miracle worker. He was a man that with next to no resources in third world countries could make the blind to see. We'll just watch that ad quickly. In the Pacific, four out of five people who are blind don't need to be. Often, they can get their sight back with a simple operation for as little as $25. Sadly, even the small amount is out of reach for many. Kiwi Eye Dr. Fred Hollows spent his life helping blind people see again. <laughs> now, it's up to us. Donate $25 today to give someone their sight back. So Fred was an amazing man um, who did some pretty amazing things in remote communities and, and third world countries. If you didn't know anything more of Jesus and just read verse 23 and 24 of chapter 8 today, you might think that Jesus is just a hopeful ophthalmologist, some form of primitive witch doctor trying out a new combination of wild herbs. He spits on his eyes and he asks the man, do you see anything? And the man says, yeah, he does. He, re he sees 
men that look like trees walking around. Now, we'd be justified to think that's not good enough. That's not being healed. It's an improvement, don't get me wrong, but this is an era well before Specsavers. There's no OPSMs around the corner. This man would still be essentially helpless, unable to work, unable to live. He'd still be at the mercy of travellers passing by and throwing some loose change in his begging bowl. Now, if we put on our impartial bystander hat with all the knowledge we have now, we know that Jesus is not a hopeful ophthalmologist. He's the creator, the one whom God spoke forth the heavens and the earth, the one who we've already seen in Mark 7.35 and who we will see in Mark 10.52 heal 100% first time the blind, the deaf and the mute. The one that we saw in Isaiah 35.5 that was to come to heal the blind and the lame. He is in control. He has the power, he has the ability and he has the will to heal. So clearly there's something else going on. Jesus and Mark are demonstrating to us a truth that we need to understand. Mark has some key themes like the kingdom of God, suffering, discipleship and I think one of his main ones, Jesus' identity and he structured the book to clearly reveal those themes. So this passage challenges us and every person that when they hear the word of the Lord, when they hear Jesus' words, do we recognise him? Do we have eyes to see that he is the Son of God? And flowing on from that, will we then listen to and believe him? Will we obey him? I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling of not recognising someone when uh, they say hello and you just can't place the face. You can't remember the name, you're at a loss and you come out with, mate, yeah, how are you doing? You know, haven't seen you since, when was the last time? It's been trying trying to work out what their name is. Imagine the Son of God, our Creator, standing in front of you and you essentially saying, oh mate, yeah, I just can't place you at the moment. I know the face though. As I said, this theme of Jesus' identity just keeps popping up, popping up all the way through Mark and it's the key to this passage. Warm your fingers up a little bit. We're going to quickly jump around a few verses in Mark. So in Mark 3.11, we see an account of... uh, evil spirits. He's in a crowd of people, evil spirits are recognising him instantly. That's the interesting bit here. They're recognising and submitting to the Son of God in their midst. Again, over in 5.7, we see the same again. This healing of the spirits known as legion. Again, the spirits recognise who he is instantly. And as we see through many of these, the people around Jesus still don't. In chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, Word is spreading of all these strange events, the miracles. There's some fear, there's confusion and people are asking, who is this man? Last week, we even saw the disciples themselves, once he'd calmed the storm in Mark 4.41, become afraid and ask, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're still questioning. There's no doubt in their minds that he's at least a mighty prophet, but the Christ... Remember that from uh, chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus avoids Galilee. He's spending time in the Gentile regions. And here, despite the disciples struggling so hard to come to grips with the reality of who Jesus is, there's Gentiles catching on in moments. It's a really significant turning point 
when the Messiah of the Jews must leave the Jewish regions and he has Gentiles turn to him in faith. It's a turning point that us as Gentiles should take note of. So this theme of seeing and not seeing, understanding and not understanding, recognising God in their midst and not recognising him comes up again and again throughout Mark. And so Jesus spits in the blind man's eyes, lays his hands on him and asks, do you see anything? And the blind man sees in part. I see men for I see them like trees walking around. And Jesus lays his hands on the man again and he sees clearly. In Mark 8, 17, Jesus seems to be getting to the point of frustration with his disciples that just don't seem to ever get it, asking, do you not yet see or understand? Having eyes, do you not see? And then in verse 21, the verse before the passage we're looking at today, do you not yet understand? Even his 12 closest followers could be as blind and deaf to Jesus as Israel had been to Yahweh over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God's people are not recognising their King, their Saviour, the Messiah, in their midst. Jesus is not a hopeful ophthalmologist or a quack trying out a new remedy with saliva, no. He's pointing out that while some see clearly and follow him, others will not even recognise him. They're blind to the truth. And still others will see, in part, they'll like what Jesus has to say. They'll be astounded at his teaching and his miracles and they'll follow him. But as we read about it, his arrest, when the persecution starts, they run away. We're being challenged. Do we have eyes that recognise the Son of God? And Mark bookmarks today's miracle with this theme. As we just saw directly before it, do you have eyes to see? And directly after, with the account of Jesus on the road, asking his disciples who they see when they look at him. Who do you say that I am? He asks them. And Peter makes the call, finally, you are the Christ. Again, it's a turning point. It's a realisation, an acceptance and a step of faith. But still, only in part. Even Peter when he needs to put his money where his mouth is, denies Jesus. The disciples are flawed. They so often don't understand what is going on and what Jesus is teaching. And so often neither do we, do we? It's easy to shake our heads at the disciples, puff out our chests and think, oh, they just, they just didn't get it. But that wouldn't be right to do. We do need to cut them some slack. We see things from the perspective of after the resurrection, after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, we know the climax to Mark's Gospel, they did not yet. We have the Holy Spirit to empower, to remind us of Jesus' words, they don't yet. And to be fair, when they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they are changed. There is real understanding, boldness and courage that comes into them. So do we have any excuse for not seeing clearly? We have the eyewitness accounts. We know how the Gospel ends and so much more. So let me wrap up with a few things that I think practically Jesus teaches us today in this account. So are you blind to Jesus? He's nothing to you. Us Christians are just plain nuts, or worse, dangerous. I put it to you that Jesus did live, that he was a real person, and he says that he came to preach the good news of God's kingdom. So let him lead you by the hand like he did the blind man out of the village and have a conversation with you as you read more about him in the Bible. You might be in a different category. 
as if you were seeing spiritual trees walking around. It's clear to you that there is a higher power or powers, but you think that different understandings of faith can, can lead us to God. You've settled for a blurry picture. You see yourself as on a journey of discovery, exploring spirituality, interested in the great things that Jesus taught, intrigued by what this faith narrative can help us to develop in ourselves, but no one can say for sure what truth is, can they? Well, if that's you, then hear clearly what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Open your eyes, turn back to Him, give your whole life to Him, believe and follow Him. Well, have you seen clearly? Do you know Jesus and recognise His work in your life? And you're like me, you look forward to that last little itch of blurriness being wiped from our eyes when we meet Jesus face to face and He welcomes us home. As Isaiah said about the faithful in chapter 53 that we heard before, they will enter Zion with singing, Everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We have a great blessing, but also a great responsibility to those that can't see clearly. The blind need others to lead and to guide them. It's why Jesus sent his disciples out into the world. It's why we can't just sit quietly and idly on a Sunday morning and then go back out to our normal lives. When younger people look to us, do they see eyes that are clearly focused on Jesus? Or do they see us focused on wealth or comfort, our careers, our hobbies, retirement? When Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, does that idea scare you a little? When those a generation or two below you, new to the faith, look to you, what priorities are you leading them towards? Let me pray. Father, help us to see you clearly in your word, in our world, in our lives. Help us to trust and obey you and lead others to you as your Holy Spirit works through us. Father, open the eyes of the blind in Robertson. May many more come to know and to love you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.